Ephesians 2.16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. The New Living Translation of that last phrase, slain the enmity, that our hostility toward each other was put to death. By his death on the cross, he reconciled Jews and Gentiles back to himself. And he also, through his death, he killed the animosity, the enmity that was between people groups. So I want to speak to you tonight on the theme, reconciliation. God bless you. Please be seated. January was Revive Us Again and other related messages. Sunday, I ministered on the theme Revive Relationships. So the prerequisite to revive relationships is reconciliation. You've got to get it one before the relationship can be revived. As I've thought about the Wednesday nights of this month, uh, there are many topics, relational topics, and I was going another direction and I felt like the Lord just redirected me that, you know, when you're, when you're laying out a theme, there should be a priority of how you think about that. And I felt like the Lord just nudged uh, reconciliation to the top of the list and um, not necessarily something that I was planning on speaking, but speaking about. But it makes a lot of sense because it is biblical. In accounting, reconciliation is a procedure that compares two sets of records to check that the figures are correct and in agreement. Reconciliation involves resolving any discrepancies that may have been discovered. If you have an accounting error, you can reconcile your bank statements or your books to put it back together again. If you think about Two standalone records that should agree in one, but uh, there's an error, there's a discrepancy, and the books don't balance. So reconciliation identifies the error, makes the correction, and balances the books. In reconciliation of relationships, it is bringing together two parties that have been estranged. I've already preached enough this year about Jacob and Esau, who were two brothers who were estranged. Reconciliation is the restoration of a proper relationship between two parties. And to reconcile is to affect peace and union between two parties who were previously at variance. I think you know this. Uh, I know you know this, but Satan is a divider. He is a divider. In heaven, if we've got it right, a third of the angels defected with him out of his own selfish, rebellious heart. He was perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in his heart. And then instantly, it seems, an angel became the devil uh, and he divided the angelic host of heaven. I want you to remember that. In every friendship, in every family, the Satan is a divider. When Jesus speaks about the sword coming 
and a man's foes will be of his own household. It is not Jesus that is initiating that division. It is Satan, the divider, that wants to come destroy relationships that God established in the beginning. Amen? Our relationship with him and between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between siblings, those are relationships that God established. So first, we have to be reconciled to God. I'm not spending a great deal of time on this, but I think it's uh, really impossible to be totally reconciled to another person until you are first reconciled to God. And when you're reconciled to God, you have the spiritual resources to be reconciled to other people. I think that unity that exists in the kingdom of God cannot really be found anywhere else because we keep the bond of the the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's a spiritual quality that exists in the body of Christ. So being reconciled to God. Ephesians 2.16, our text, that we're together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups. In the context, I've already explained somewhat Jews and Gentiles by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward one another was also put to death by the blood of his cross. So being reconciled to God is the first step. Isaiah 59 and 2 uh, teaches us that our iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The Bible says, teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that by one man's sin entered the world and death by sin, so that death is passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So because of sin, we were and many are still estranged from God, separated from God by our sins. Now in the ancient world, they say that reconciliation was usually made in one of two ways. Sometimes a third party would come and seek reconciliation of an alienated party and take that first step toward getting two brothers or husband and wife back together again. So there was an intervention by a third party. Sometimes that happens today. And I thank God for people who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Amen. And, and sometimes restoration is made uh, by the person who is the alienated party, the person who did wrong. And biblically, that's who should initiate reconciliation. And I'll show that scripturally later. But in this whole matter of God and us, there is this somewhat unexpected twist in that God was the offended party. God never was unfaithful to us, but we were unfaithful to God. And while we should have initiated reconciliation toward God, God took the first step toward us. Second Corinthians 5.19. To wit or to understand that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing or not calculating 
not counting their trespasses unto them. So in other words, we had all of these sins, all of these trespasses. God was in Christ initiating reconciliation. And instead of counting our sins against us and destroying us because of our sins, he reconciled us to him and he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So God removed the alienation created by our own sins. Romans chapter five, verse six. For when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man, one would die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated or commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, by his resurrection. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. And uh, the atonement is a, a biblical word. I like to simplify it by saying at one minute. It's reconciliation or propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. So in the cross of Jesus Christ, God brought us together with him. We have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having been reconciled to God, now you have the responsibility and you have the power to be reconciled to other people. And we should be working on it all the time because Satan is a divider and would love to destroy human relationships. So let's walk through Ephesians 2.11 through 18. <clears throat> Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. So in other words, he said, the Jewish people who are called the circumcision spoke in a condescending way toward you. That verse 12, that at that time you are without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So you weren't part of their church, right? And you were strangers from the covenants of promise. The Bible asked the question, what advantage has the Jew? And it says much every way for unto them was commit, were committed the oracles of God. They had the law. Remember when they were going to go into the Canaan land and the Bible said, people are going to look at you and say, what kind of people is this that have a God like this, that have commandments and laws and principles like this? They're superior to everyone else. And if you think about Western civilization and our legal system based on the laws of the Bible, what an amazing book, right? But then Paul says, you Gentiles, you didn't have any of that. You were part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were without God in the world, having no hope, rather, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Now, you know, we sing about peace, 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 wonderful peace coming down. 
from the Father above, at least we used to back in the day. And peace, you think, is, you know, a feeling. But peace is the absence of war. Peace is a condition. Peace is a standing that we have with God. For he is our peace. And now he's talking about this relationship between people, between Jews and Gentiles, who hath made both one and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So in our culture, especially American culture, we think about racial divisions, maybe cultural divisions. But the greatest division existed in the Bible between Jews and Gentiles. And God, having reconciled Jews and Gentiles, gives us the power to reconcile any difference that exists between people. And he broke down, he demolished a middle wall of partition. If you imagine in the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles. There was a court of women. And if you were a Gentile, if you were a woman, you couldn't come very close in worship to God. But God demolished that dividing wall that stood between those two cultures, which is pretty powerful. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the animosity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of two or twain one new man so making peace. So this peace with God has now extended between peace with men and other men and women and other women. This peace that we have with God is now being extended and that power is bringing us together and making reconciliation with people who have been estranged from one another. So the last phrase, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. And this last powerful phrase, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off and to them, which were nigh Gentiles and Jews for through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the father. This is an incredible truth in Ephesians two that we've been reconciled to God and we have the power to be reconciled to one another and having that benefit, having that power and privilege, we should not live our lives estranged from other people. So the blood shed by the death of Jesus Christ reconciled us to God and also to one another. That's what verse 16 says. I want to read it again. I've read it twice, I think, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And in the New Living Translation, our hostility toward each other was put to death. It is a play on words. It's pretty fascinating to say that there's this thing that exists. It is wrath, anger, hatred, issues that people have with one another. I know you don't have any issues with anybody probably wasting my breath tonight, but just theoretically, someone you know may have issues with other people. And the power of the cross 
actually killed that animosity. They put it to death in potential. In the same way that just because Jesus died doesn't mean you're saved. You've got to apply or appropriate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life. You have to take advantage of what Jesus did for you. So he put to death your sins. He also put to death enmity, animosity. But now you've got to practically work it out. The Bible tells us how to do that. In many, many places, several places of scripture. So death by the blood of his cross. So I've kind of worn that out, you know. So I'm going to kind of skim through some of my notes here that deal with that in particular. So let's talk about, let's get real practical tonight and talk about being reconciled to one another. Uh, What is that about? So Jesus, and some of these verses are very familiar to you. Um, It's a lot easier to read them than it is to live them. Matthew 5, 23. So Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one discourse by Jesus. He's got hearers there. And if you read through Matthew 5, 6, 7, Jesus pretty much lays out principles of the kingdom of God. Those three chapters are very powerful that were enacted by the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Matthew 5, 23. Jesus is teaching, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, I'll read it in the King James. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there... While you're there offering your gift. Now, this doesn't mean like a $5 bill. This is in the context of Jewish worship. So you're there and you probably have a ram, a goat, a lamb, two turtle doves. You have a sacrifice. Maybe it might be a meal offering, a peace offering. If you've been reading through your Bible, you've been reading about all those offerings. But you are in church in Jerusalem, and you're offering your gift to God. You cannot offer a gift to God anywhere else. You had to do it here. And while you're there, you have this aha moment. And you're like, oh man, what a time for that to come to mind. And you remember that your brother, somebody else has wronged you. They have ought against you. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way first. First, be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Now, I I knew this, but I never thought about this till I was preparing for this message. That Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee, a province. And he's talking about you going to Jerusalem, maybe 80 plus miles away and offering a sacrifice. But while you're in Jerusalem offering a sacrifice, you remember that 80 miles away or whatever, there's this person that you've got to make peace with. So this is, this is not easy. You've got to leave your sacrifice there got to go all the way back to wherever there is. You've got to attempt reconciliation with that person. 
and you've got to go 80 miles back to Jerusalem, and then you offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is that it kind of doesn't matter how hard it is, how inconvenient it is for you to reconcile with people. I put it ahead of you offering it to me. I preached about it Sunday, that if you cannot love your brother, sister, that you can see, how can you love God that you cannot see? Because that brother and sister was made in the image and likeness of God, right? And we're all God's children by his creation and from Adam and Eve. So God calls us to initiate reconciliation uh, here when we realize that we're the offending party and that someone's got something against us because of something we have done. We're the offending party. So we go make it right. Inconvenient? Yes. Necessary? Yes. Once again, Matthew 5, 24, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer your gift. Initiate reconciliation if you've done that. Now there's a second example in the Bible that's a little more obscure when we talk about this, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing about uh, the benefits of singleness, the challenges of married life, and some teaching on the marriage relationship. And in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7, and unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now, typically, you're going to see the advantage toward the men, you know, in the Old Testament, if she doesn't please them. But now this is saying that, that the wife is, is upset with her husband. I know that's never happened to you, but this is hypothetical. Just in the Bible, it's not practical at all. And she is so upset and that she wants to leave. Paul says, don't do it. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, if she does it anyway, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And then Paul balances it like the Bible always does. And let the husband, not, and let not the husband put away or divorce his wife. So maybe, you know, he's been mean to her. He's, his prayers are hindered. Maybe he's not honored his wife as a weaker vessel or an heir together of the grace of life. So she's, she's upset, her feelings are hurt, so she's going to leave. So Paul says this, maybe the grass is greener on the other side of the street, but James Dobson said back in the day, it still has to be mowed. <laughs> Even if it's greener, you still have to take care of it. So Paul says, um, you, you, you read it, right? She's not to remarry. She's to be reconciled to her husband. This is a deterrent to getting discouraged in a marriage and looking for a way out. The Bible says that you should work it out, not try to get out. Now, there's, there's biblical exceptions, marital unfaithfulness. This doesn't have anything to do with that. That is not the, that's not the problem. It's not the exception clause for divorce. There's no indication of abuse here. She just... Whatever's going on, she leaves. Now, verse 11, Paul applies it also to the husband. But, but I want you to see 
She may be the offending party or offended party, but she left. So maybe it's her fault. I don't really know. We don't, we don't know what happened here, right? She burnt dinner. He didn't take out the trash. I, I don't know what happened, how serious it is. I, those surely aren't serious, but it's amazing. You know, Satan is a divider. Just so you'll know, that was not in my notes, but while we were worshiping, sitting over there, I grabbed my handy dandy note card that I keep here and I wrote, Satan divider. I'm, I'm going to wear this little idea out here tonight because it was a post sinking my notes prompting that we need to understand where this comes from. Now, I know imperfect people can cause enough problems on their own. Our idiosyncrasies, our personalities, our stubbornness, our selfishness. But I just want you to see that Satan is a divider. But Paul says, go back home and be reconciled to your husband. Uh, I've talked about this next thing sometime in the past. It's been a while. But when I was a, a young adult, my mom and I were talking. My mom was like this amazing cook, housewife. She wasn't like a teacher, preacher. It wasn't a lot that my mom would lecture you about stuff. That just wasn't her personality. But one day we were talking and she said, you know, Daryl, um, through the years of our marriage, there's been lots of times that your dad and I have been through difficult times. Maybe we weren't getting along or maybe finances were tough. My dad was a carpenter and the economy in Miami, Florida would ebb and flow. And there were times he was out of work for weeks at a time and four kids, you know, single wage earner back then. Later, my mom babysat kids. She said there, there were lots of times that it might have seemed easier just to, just to leave, just to split up. But we were taught that that's not an option. You know, there was, no, there was no moral infidelity here. We were taught that you just stay and you work it out. Well, that's what Paul is saying. You go home and you work it out. And my mom told me that because she knew there were no options, that you just always worked it out. And years and years later, years and years later, as my mom and dad aged and my dad passed away and then my mom passed away, you look back and many of you can look back and you thank God because you think about what could have happened. You know, for my dad, you know, I mentioned that Sunday, you know, his legacy is divorce, that his mom and dad divorced. His dad was a gambler and immoral. And then later his mom and her second husband divorced. That was the legacy of my dad's family. But thank God my mom and dad built their relationship around the Bible, not a perfect marriage because they're people just like us, but they had this idea that if you're wrong, you make it right. Sort of like this. If you mess up, you fess up and you make it right. You humble yourself and you confess your faults. You don't just get out. Because it seems easier in the moment. And I'm just going to say it again, that there are some biblical exceptions for divorce, but this passage is not referring to that. So I want to make a broader application. The scripture has one interpretation, many applications. So I want to apply this idea about the wife who leaves and Bible tells her to go back. You know, you're going to have to remain single. So you can't just find greener grass, you're going to have to be out there in the desert, right? Or go back home. That's what the Bible says. So relationships are not simple. All relationships. I'm making an application beyond marriage. 
Relationships are not easy. They're not simple. And when there's a disagreement in a relationship, at first, it might seem that the easiest thing to do is run. This friendship, I'm talking now about friendship. It's just not worth it. Like that passage is saying, this wife evidently said, it's not worth it. I'm not living with him anymore. So I'm making an application, third time I've said this, to relationships in general. Relationships are not easy. And if you really love people, and if you want to be right with God, then you try to work out relationships and bring reconciliation, and you do not run away from conflict. You do not run away from the person. I grew up on the saying that sometimes you jump out of the frying pan into the fire. If you're old enough or your family's from the country, maybe you heard that too. So in the Bible way is that we seek reconciliation, not the divorce of marriage or a friendship or another relationship. Now, what if you are not the offending party? Wasn't your fault. So we're going to go to Matthew 18. And we're going to walk through Matthew 18 for a few minutes here. Matthew 18, 15. Now you're the offended party. Moreover, if thy brother, by the way, if you're a sister, this applies to you too, right? Thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell them his fault between thee and him alone. It's like reading my first book, right? Just on purpose. Go and tell him or her his fault between thee and him alone. Not after you've told your small group to pray with you about so-and-so who offended you or posted it on social media or got seven people And you've told them, I just need you to pray about it. It is never right to do wrong. It's never right to violate a scripture. It does not say that you go to your pastor or another spiritual leader at this point. This is step one in the process of reconciliation. Last phrase, if he or she shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So now you're going to go alone in private. You, you explain, you know, I feel offended by this. Don't always get your feelings hurt over nothing. This is clearly something that you've been wrong. You go to them alone. This is very hard to do. This is very hard to do. That's why so many people don't do this and wonder why. Things don't work out because you don't obey the Bible. Not you, but people watching online. And if you're watching online, I'm joking. (laughs) You know, people, some hypothetical people that will later watch this online from other churches. (laughs) Nobody in Atlanta was. Okay, okay. Verse 16. But if he or she will not hear thee, then... Take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, 
every word may be established. So you're going to take another person or two people with you. You still haven't called the church. You haven't sent an email to the pastor. This is all between brothers and sisters, and you're trying to reconcile. The goal is reconciliation. And you're going to establish every word. I believe that the reason this is here is because sometimes that second person, that neutral party, that second, you know, that witness or two witnesses, well, wait, wait, wait a second. Maybe this was a misunderstanding. And now you've got some objectivity into this fractured relationship. Step two. Okay. <clears throat> Verse 17. I, I know how slow I'm going right now. Verse 17. And if he or she shall neglect to hear them. You've got these, this one or two witnesses that are with you. And they're saying, well, you stole this guy's cow. Whatever, in Bible times, right? You, you, did, the, you did this person wrong. You owed them $1,000. You never paid them back. I want you to get a show of hands of anybody that is owed money. But I we could, like most of us, could raise our hands, right? <clears throat> if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Now you go and you get the church involved. This is when it gets really serious. <clears throat> but if he or she neglect to hear the church, and here the church clearly has authority to speak into this situation and do something about it. But if at that point they will not respond to the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now they are no longer considered a brother or a sister. You've been gone in private, gone with two witnesses. This does not mean take it to the church business meeting. It means to take it to church leadership. I've checked my theology on this with theologians and the Bible and believe that's right. And then read verse 18. Let's keep going. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, you, when you hear this verse preached sometimes, Talking about binding and loosing the devil. I'm not, but this is about whenever the local church makes this decision on earth, following this biblical precedent, this priority, whatever is done on earth by this church is honored in heaven. That means if they're out of the church on earth, from God's perspective, they're out of the church in heaven. Now, I know that in our modern culture, you have to be careful. I get all that. I'm just preaching, teaching the Bible here, what the Bible says. Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, remember the context. Remember what this is about. It's about reconciliation. That if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, the primitive church. That's what reconciliation is. So Jesus gave the local church great authority to address conflicts. There's a process that has to be done. And, and really, reconciliation is the goal. And even when that person might be no longer allowed to be in the church. Salvation is the goal. 
and I don't have time to get into this story, but 1 Corinthians 5 is about a man who has committed incest, and the Corinthian church is kind of proud that they've left him to be involved in ministry, and Paul tells them, put him out of the church. This is a sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. He said, you've got to put this person out of the body of Christ. But then he says, you're going to do this. I don't have this on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 5 and 5. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I know this is like radical surgery, but this guy will not repent. He's evil. You're going to have to disfellowship him, and he's going to be left out there without the body of Christ, and the devil's going to whoop up on him, and maybe he'll repent. Well, the Corinthians took that so much to heart. This guy did repent. They were thinking they were being good saints and obedient to Paul, and they would not let him back in the church. Second Corinthians chapter two, I'm just getting right to the verse. Paul said, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted by many. You froze him out so that contrawise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. Lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. In other words, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it worked. It seemed like it was really hard, but it worked. And that guy repented. He, it was a moral sin. And now that he's repented, open your arms and let him back in. The goal is reconciliation. And even radical surgery, the goal is salvation. It is better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two, right? 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, this is talking about how church discipline is to be handled. <clears throat> Paul is talking to the Corinthians, same people, right? About how they mishandled relationship problems. <clears throat> I'm staying in the King James for the most part tonight. Dare any of you, how does he open this? Dare any of you having a matter Against another, go to law, civil authority before the unjust and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that you shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, Set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. You're getting these people who are not wise to solve these problems. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between brethren, somebody that can be like to intervene and help, you know, be a liaison and reconciler, peacemaker. Paul said, you didn't take that route. Verse six. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. You've gone to civil authority. This is not a criminal case. It's a civil case. Verse 7, now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. It'd be better, he said, if you just kind of took it. Rather than to go 
public with this against this believer. Now, the Bible says this as well. I'm finished with that. Romans 12 and 18. You're, you're sitting there right now and you're like, man, I've really done my best and it's just, it's, they've not responded. What do I do? No, so Paul tells us, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, and the whole passage is really good, by the way, live peaceably with all men because you cannot fix the other person. Matthew 18 is about doing what you can do. Matthew 5 is about doing what you can do. But God gave people a free will. You cannot fix the other person, but you can, you can do what you can. Now, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Because it takes two parties to reconcile. In potential, when Jesus Christ died on the cross... His, he died for the sins of the world, the whole world. Everybody that would ever be born, his blood could forgive every sin of every person in the entire world. But reconciliation takes two or two parties, right? But forgiveness only takes one party. Forgiveness is a command. Forgiveness is our responsibility. We hope that there can be reconciliation. But even if not, you've got to forgive no matter what the action is. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If any have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 17, recompense. This is that same idea. To no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of men. I'm reading this verse again. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But here's the next verse. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. I'm going to get them. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I know that trust takes time. But I just want to say that even when you've attempted reconciliation and it has not happened, you must always forgive. I've learned that when people don't forgive, there's a toxin called bitterness that builds up in their life. Bitterness is an acid that eats its own container. It is a cancer that destroys its own body. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Mark Twain said that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured.
It's amazing. Bitterness is destroying you, but the other person, they're sleeping at night. You're not. They're eating really well, but you're getting an ulcer and not eating. It controls and consumes, and that's why we must eliminate it. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted. We live in a very hard-hearted world. Moses' last words to Israel in Deuteronomy he said, under this punishment, he said, so he's going to be hard-hearted people, right? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I recognize that emotional residue, the residue of hurt can be in your heart, doesn't go away in an instant. But when you follow biblical principles, things work out. And even, even if it doesn't work out for the other person, You've saved yourself and you've tried to save them. If you're able, please stand. <clears throat> we want a revival of relationships, right? Revive us again. I want to be thoroughly right with God. We want to be right with other people. So let's obey the scriptures. I won't review what I've just said. If you have a few moments, why don't you gather at the altar and let's take some time to pray. I hope they've written a song to go with this sermon tonight, this message. Because I'm not sure we've got one, but I know they're trying. I want us to just come and if there's anything that unfinished business you need to take care of. You just want to make sure that you check your spirit, that there's this principle that needs to be applied in your life. Let's just ask God to help us be obedient to his word so that we can see reconciliation in our lives. Let's make sure that we do not let Satan, the divider, destroy relationships that God has ordained in our lives. Amen. Let's just pray a little while now.